The NASH Take Action podcast series is a CME program brought to you by the American Gastroenterological Association. NASH is the most advanced form of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This six-episode podcast series is ACCME accredited. The series is sponsored by a medical education grant from Novo Nordisk. You can find all six episodes and collect your CME credits at nash.gastro.org. Welcome to the NASH Take Action podcast. I am Dr. Fasiha Kanwa, Professor of Medicine, Chief of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Baylor College of Medicine, Houston, Texas. In this podcast, my colleagues Ken Kusi and Jay Chubrook and I will talk to global leaders in gastroenterology, hepatology, endocrinology, and primary care about the real-world practical implications of screening, diagnosing, and managing people with NAFLD and NASH. In this episode, we are talking about diagnosing NAFLD and NASH, and here are the topics we will cover today. Non-invasive diagnostic techniques for patients at high risk for NASH, when to refer a patient to a hepatologist, and the role of liver biopsy in diagnosing NASH. I am here with my co-hosts, Dr. Ken Kusi and Dr. Jay Shubrook. Ken? Hi, Faseha. Yeah, I'm, I'm Ken Kusi. I'm the Chief of Endocrinology and Diabetes at the University of Florida at Gainesville in North Florida. Jay? Hi, Jay Shubrook, a family physician and primary care diabetologist at Torah University of California. Glad to be here. So Ken and Jay, as you know, we're talking about diagnosing NAFLD and NASH and the challenges that as clinicians we face. What, what do, you, do you generally do uh, as sort of the first step, uh, Jay, for diagnosing individuals at high risk for NASH? I'm, I'm sure you see a lot of patients. Sure. So I think, first of all, I think we have to have an awareness of who's high risk. And and may, sadly, there are more people who are high risk than not. Um, but again, anyone who's got metabolic syndrome, anyone that's got type 2 diabetes, people who have insulin resistance and obesity are all going to be at higher risk for this condition. And I think that we have to have a plan for screening. And and sadly, that we, we didn't have a pathway before that was agreed upon by everyone. So I think that what we're recommending here and what we think it should be really looked at is doing some measurement of risk, you know, that could be done with a FIB4 score and some measure of, of elasticity of the liver. And so that may be done in primary care, it may not, but I think it all starts with knowing who to test. And, and that's an important thing that we haven't been able to do before. Absolutely. Again, how many patients do you send for liver biopsy? Let's put it this way, because I do some research a little bit different, but on the clinical side, uh, I, I don't send them for a biopsy. I send them to you guys, to the hepatologist, to make that decision uh, after gathering, you know, additional information. I think the problem starts earlier in the sense that um, many of our endocrinologists still are not aware or thinking about NAS. They know about it, but they've not make it operational a little bit because um, we have this old school in mind that we worry about liver enzymes. We look at liver enzymes just to um, make sure the statin is working. Uh, if it's high, they might send it to you. But as you know, Fasica, most of our patients with NASH have liver enzymes in this bracket between 20 to 40. So as I like to say, the cutoff of 40 is uh, like saying I want to diagnose 
diabetes with an A1C of seven and a half. It's a high cutoff. And maybe uh, that's a homework that uh, gastroenterologists should should, should uh, look at. I mean, in terms of educating uh, the rest of the uh, players in what is a normal ALT. But but getting back to what Jay said, um, I think the, the cheap approach would be to stick in the mind the FIB4 in the same way that we measure microbiomen or that we look for, you know, uh, lipids in, in, in our daily practice. Uh, that would be a big step. But, but the question is, how, how do you think we, we should be using the imaging, uh, uh, point of care imaging at this point? What, what, what is your gastroenterology field thinking about, Prasiga? We also, in our field, are moving away from liver biopsy because we have so many other non-invasive ways to assess for fibrosis, which is the main lesion that we are looking for. Um, for imaging, um, most of us you use some sort of electrography, um, the fibroscan or vibration controlled um, electrography is something which is commonly used. Uh, I would not say that it is available in all different practice settings, but most practice settings have uh, a fibroscan or fibroscan machine or something similar. Um, in some institutions, uh, we also have access to MR elastography that uh, could be used. But across the board, the field is moving away from using liver biopsy. Uh, it is still used for patients, especially the ones um, that are enrolled in clinical trials or when, when there is diagnostic dilemma, which is not that uncommon um, that if you do two different non-invasive tests and they are inconsistent, that is the group that we still go ahead and um, move towards liver biopsy, uh, especially if it's going to change the management if the pre-test likelihood or the suspicion is very high, for example, for cirrhosis or advanced fibrosis. That's the group that um, we still uh, lean towards liver biopsy. But overall, we are relying on non-invasive diagnostic tests um, more and more. And I think that's the point, uh, Jay, I remember in one of our earlier conversations that came up, um, that just thinking about it can make a difference. That we might think that these, we don't have access to these techniques or these tests in our practice settings, but you just have to pick up the phone and call someone and you re realize that actually that resource is available. Um, so sometimes um, the important part, I think, here is uh, knowing about it and thinking about it. Well, that's a great point. So that's that's one thing is that I think now most endocrinologists, in the past, I had to convince endocrinologists that a lot of their patients with obesity or diabetes type 2 diabetes had NASH. Now I think there's a less resistance. Um, I think the next step will build this reflex as we have for microbiome and for sending somebody for an eye exam and talking about people with diabetes. Um, and I think the next step would be this action of measuring a FIB4. Even in my own practice, some of my endocrinologists don't do that, particularly their endocrinologists that don't like that much to take care of many patients with diabetes. And now for our... Um, audience, FIB4 is a diagnostic panel composed of age, AST, ALT, and platelets. And in any um, web browser, you just put the FIB4 calculator and it gives you a number. And the numbers to remember are if it's below 1.3, you're most likely at low risk of advanced fibrosis. If it's above the double that 1.3 is 2.6, bigger than 2.6, uh, you're probably in trouble. You should schedule an appointment with your hepatologist. 
And in the middle, that's what happens in 30 or 40% of the patients. That's where we think imaging works. Now, when I give talks, I say, people say, oh, we don't have in primary care or, or in endocrine clinics uh, uh, an elastography machine, a fiber scan or others. Uh, say, well, just order it the same way we order an x-ray or, or a bone density. If you have electronic medical records, it's not nothing, nothing you need now. You can have it for the next visit. And... Uh, Hopefully, with that, you'll be able to classify patients. Jay, you're in the trenches there. In the first, what do you do about that? Yeah, I want to highlight some things you both said that are so important. So, first of all, don't rely on the transaminases to determine who has fatty liver. You know, we know that well within the normal transaminases, you can have fatty liver all the way to NASH. Two, you have very simple tools, like you mentioned, a web browser. I have it on MedCalc. I can calculate a FIB4 almost any time very cheaply. And that helps to sort out who needs more. And then right. to the point earlier, I thought I didn't have access to a fiber scan because I just assume, oh, I never heard of it. I don't, I don't have access. But sure enough, you do have it. And all you have to do is ask either your hospital or talk to your colleagues I mean, if you have a gastroenterologist, they'll know where a fiber scan is. And so this is why it's so important to be using a team-based approach because we have more resources than we think we have. And this doesn't have to be complicated. And your patients are not all going to end up on a liver biopsy, which is what many people are worried about. So this we've got quite a bit of simplification now. And I think, quite honestly, better specificity. So Jake may add something to you from the non-hepatology angle. I mean, this is really important because one of the complaints I get from hepatologists is that either we don't send them or we send them all. So I think that your hepatologist would be delighted that you did a fiber scan beforehand and that you're sending them somebody that has fibrosis level that's in, that's clinically significant in terms of risk. So remember that we're not looking for just fat. So we know two-thirds of people with obesity or type 2 diabetes have fat. We just look at NAFLD in the liver, but we, we think about NAFLD just to identify those with fibrosis. And the fiber scan reports can be a little bit overwhelming for non-hepatologists. Just concentrate at least in the KPA, that number, if it's eight or greater, I'm sure Fasica wants to see them. What is your take on this, Fasica? I agree completely. Those are the individuals that we would like to see. The higher the KPA, um, the higher the risk uh, of having uh, suboptimal liver uh, outcomes. And those are the patients that should be referred to a hepatologist. So I talked to uh, a hepatologist, Dr. Vincent Wang, head of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And this is what he had to say. Hi, Vincent. Uh, it's pleasure to have you here with us. Vincent, I wanted to um, get your opinion on what um, is your approach to non-invasive testing in patients who are at high risk for NASH? Okay. So I think it, the context is really important. So it depends on uh, where we are and uh, and what kind of patients we are uh, looking at because uh, the pretest probability of advanced liver disease would really affect uh, what kind of test we should perform. And of course, the availability of the test would also be important. So recently, I have had the pleasure of working with uh, different experts on preparing the AGA uh, clinical care pathway. So uh, the first step we really have to consider is what 
constitutes the high-risk group. So after some discussion, we identified a number of individuals whom we would like to evaluate further. Now, the uh, most obvious one is for people who have already been diagnosed to have fatty liver. So for example, uh, under some uh, imaging tests or other investigations, those patients were found to have fatty liver, and it would be our responsibility to work them up further to see whether the fatty liver is severe or not. But other high-risk groups would include patients with type 2 diabetes and also patients with the metabolic syndrome, as defined by uh, various metabolic factors, including uh, not only diabetes, but also the presence of uh, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and obesity. And we also know that central obesity, as defined by the waist circumference, would be important. Now, this is the first step, so we have to identify a high-risk population, and then we have to talk about what tests to perform. Now, let's talk about uh, the primary care setting or non-specialist setting first, because this is really where most of the patients are being seen. Now, in those settings, uh, although uh, clinicians will see a lot of patients with fatty liver disease, but uh, on the whole, the proportion of patients with a really advanced disease, namely bridging fibrosis, cirrhosis, or even liver decompensation, would be the minority. And therefore, it would make sense to use some simple tests as initial screening. Now, according to the clinical care pathway, the first test that clinicians may consider first would be a, a test called the FIP4 index, which stands for fibrosis 4. It really uh, uh, incorporates uh, four uh, factors associated with advanced liver fibrosis. So the four factors would include uh, older age, uh, lower platelet count, and also uh, two liver enzymes, the AST and AOT level. Now, uh, some of these factors are easy to understand because uh, like any chronic liver diseases, the longer the disease duration is, the more likely the patient would have progressed to advanced uh, stage, and therefore older age is important. Now, platelet count is obviously uh, a useful biomarker for you to see patients with a probable portal hypertension and hypersplenism, so it is reflecting whether the patient may start to have advanced fibrosis or even liver cirrhosis. And then the AST and AOT would be uh, more specific uh, for the liver disease. Now with the FIP4 index, uh, we, the lower cutoff the, that we adopt would be 1.3 because we know that in multiple liver biopsy studies that this is a cutoff with really high negative predictive value in excluding advanced liver fibrosis. More importantly, Recent studies have also shown that in the uh, general population setting or in primary care setting, if a patient has low FIP4 value of less than 1.3, really in the next 15 to 20 years, the risk of the patient developing liver complications, cirrhosis, cirrhotic complications, and liver cancer would be minimal. And therefore, this test, although very simple, has a very high negative predictive value not only for histological fibrosis, but also for future liver-related outcomes. And therefore, we believe that this would be a good initial test for screening. So, so far, if the test has uh, a low value, we are pretty certain that the risk of liver disease and complication would be rather low. So I think this would be a good start. Great, uh, Vincent. That I completely agree with that. And as you mentioned, the AGA clinical 
Gearpathway describes it and makes it quite explicit. One thing that I, I think uh, is worth uh, mentioning is the effect of age on FIB4 cutoffs, especially the, the lower cutoff. As you know, uh, for uh, patients who are older than 65, the cutoff is uh, 2.0 based upon um, the studies that have looked at that um, because age is an important component of FIB4 and older age will pull the value higher. Um, uh, the recommendation uh, in studies and in the clinical care pathway is to use the cutoff of 2.0 instead of 1.3 for patients who are older than 65. Um, so that I thought was um, an important, I think, take-home message for primary care physicians who are taking care of uh, patients. I had someone reach out to me um, about an older patient who had high FIB4, and that um, context was important for that patient. So, Vincent, what do you recommend or what do clinicians do if the FIB4 is higher um, than the cutoff specified in the clinical care pathway? What is the next step that one can consider? Okay, now in the literature, there are a number of uh, different uh, cutoffs, but uh, the one that uh, we have adopted in the clinical care pathway would be a uh, 2.67. So essentially, uh, this would be the high cutoff with a higher probability of advanced liver disease. If a patient has a FIB4 index of more than 2.67, we can basically refer the patient uh, to hepatologist for further evaluation. On the other hand, if the FIB4 index is somewhere in between, so uh, higher than 1.3 in a younger patient and higher than 2.0 in older patient, and while less than 2.67, then we call that the intermediate risk group. So uh, uh, this is not to say that it must be somewhere in between. It just means that uh, the value is uh, not discriminating enough to tell us whether this is mild disease, severe disease, or some somewhere in between. So this is where a second test would be helpful. Now, it depends on the availability of the second test. So uh, if in settings where the second test may not be immediately available, then a referral to a hepatologist for further evaluation would make sense. On the other hand, if uh, our colleagues have access to some uh, second-line test, then uh, they may also wish to have that first before making further decisions. Now, in the uh, clinical care pathway, uh, the recommended second test would be liver stiffness measurement by transient elastography. So, uh, and the cutoff that uh, we adopt would be uh, 8 kilopascal for ruling out advanced liver disease and 12 kilopascal for ruling in uh, uh, advanced liver disease. And again, uh, people in the middle ground between 8 to 12 kilopascal would have indeterminate risk and requires uh, further testing or even a liver biopsy for further characterization. Great. And I, Vincent, another, I think you mentioned that um, the middle group, the indeterminate group, in clinical practice, that's not a very small group. A third of patients, 30 to 40% of patients who undergo these testing would fall in that group. So it's not that uncommon that clinicians would encounter it. So knowing that there is a second step that could be done even before patients are sent to a liver specialist is good to know. And I agree. I think it depends on local availability. 
so knowing what are the different resources that are available in a clinical practice setting is important. Um, for example, some institutions uh, would have a fibro scan or something similar for liver stiffness measurement available. So, so knowing that is good for clinicians because then uh, really um, for 30% of patients, they could be further stratified into whether they really need to go see a specialist or, or not. Um, and based upon different studies, um, a specialist referral can be avoided in a significant proportion of patients. Um, so I think that uh, is also important to to recognize. Any other test, um, uh, Vincent, things are moving at such a, a fast pace with the new advancements um, in diagnostic modalities and testing. Do you think things are going to be very different um, with what we use in the next five years? Or do you think the the current recommendations in some form and shape will hold true uh, over the next two to five years? Okay, I think as something will stay. So, for example, I still think as a simple test would have their role because uh, they are essentially, uh, they don't cost you anything extra. When you ask for a liver panel, uh, most likely you will have uh, those uh, liver enzymes. And it is also not expensive to ask for a platelet count. And therefore, uh, those simple tests uh, would be very appealing, particularly if you use that as an uh, initial screening. I think uh, it will be there to stay. Now, uh, regarding liver stiffness measurement, uh, again, I think uh, it would uh, continue to have its role, mainly because uh, uh, it is a point-of-care test. So uh, in some settings, when you have the machine nearby, you can perform the examination at the same setting, and therefore you can uh, give the patient the results and then uh, make the next management decision uh, right away. Now, on the other hand, of course, we have to anticipate uh, new changes. Now, uh, there are two tests that uh, I may specifically highlight. So uh, the first uh, type of test would be uh, a specific fibrosis biomarkers. So uh, uh, mainly because uh, nowadays there are several agents entering a phase three development for the treatment of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And some of these agents may, uh, may be registered for the treatment of this condition uh, in a few years time. And in almost all the phase three studies, multiple biomarkers are measured uh, together with serial liver biopsies. And therefore we would know the performance of those biomarkers not only as a surrogate for the histological features, but also whether or not uh, they can predict clinical outcomes in, in the future. Now, among the uh, blood tests, uh, I think uh, two particularly uh, stand out. The first test would be the uh, ELF test, or what we call the Enhanced Liver Fibrosis Panel. So it is a combination of uh, three specific fibrosis biomarkers, now, uh, there will be uh, presentations at the upcoming uh, ESO meeting uh, in this year. So what we know is that compared with other non-invasive tests, uh, although it has a similar uh, performance as some of the other blood tests and also transient elastography, but on the whole, it has less variation over time. So the coefficient of variation is particularly low compared with liver stiffness measurement, for example. And also because uh, it has been correlated with so many uh, drug trials, so we will know whether it can be used to monitor treatment response. So uh, this is something that uh, we anticipate. 
Now, the test has already been recommended in the United Kingdom by the NICE guideline as one of the initial tests for fatty liver disease. So we will have to see uh, the subsequent data to see whether it will have a place as uh, some of the routine measurements. Now, another uh, blood biomarker that has uh, gained uh, a lot of attention would be uh, the ProC3 which really measures the new formation of a collagen. So it is a real biomarker of fibrogenesis. So in a way, uh, it may be both a reflection of the current fibrosis uh, stage and also uh, the activity of the disease. So how fast the uh, fibrosis is going to progress in the next few years. So again, uh, this has been incorporated in many clinical trials and we are going to uh, see interesting data. Now, this is uh, for the uh, blood biomarker part. And regarding imaging biomarkers, I wouldn't call it a new test because uh, it has been around for some years already. But uh, uh, the adoption uh, has not been uh, widespread uh, at the moment, uh, except in some, uh, for example, in some centers in the uh, United States or in Japan, there may be uh, more adoption. So the test I'm I'm referring to would be a magnetic resonance elastography, or in short, we call it MRE. So compared with ultrasound-based elastography, such as a, a, a fibroscan, a MRE would have higher applicability, so the success rate of measurement would be higher, and at the same time, uh, the overall accuracy is also higher. And therefore, as some uh, some centers have been routinely performing that, and again, this has been uh, used as a monitoring tool in some clinical trials as well. Uh, what is lacking would be uh, the responsiveness of the uh, ML elastography if we want to evaluate uh, a treatment response. Now, uh, many of the studies so far would be cross-sectional in nature. But if you want to use it as a monitoring tool, you really have to ask uh, how fast would fibrosis improve over time and how fast would ML elastography uh, improve over time. So uh, we need that bit of data uh, to finally recommend how to use it in clinical practice, not only for case selection, but also for treatment monitoring. Mm -hmm. Things are going to be moving fast and we will see more progress in the field. My sense is that the platform or just our way of thinking will be the same, that you start with a first tier simple test and then go on to a more sophisticated second tier test. Uh, I think the first tier test probably will stay the same, as you mentioned. The second tier, I think there is going to be some movement and uh, advances uh, that we, I think, will stay tuned to, um, as we referred both from blood as well as imaging biomarker uh, ends. Uh, I want to go back to transient elastography because I think it will have, a, it, it has a space, a place right now, and I think it will stay the same. Uh, many of our patients are obese, and there are issues with performance of these tests in, in obese patients. What should the clinicians think about, both at the low cutoff and as the high cutoff, uh, for some of these tests, and when to go and look for an alternative test? Okay. Now, this is a very important point. Whenever we order an, inf an investigation, we need to understand how it is performed and also the limitations and precautions uh, for that matter. Now, for transient elastography, the major hurdle would be a severe obesity. So, because uh, when you perform liver stiffness measurement by transient elastography, essentially you are sending a shear wave across the liver parenchyma 
and then you would use an ultrasound beam to trace the original shear wave to measure its velocity. And therefore, if a patient has severe obesity with a thick subcutaneous fat and prehepatic fat, there may be trouble uh, transmitting the wave across the liver parenchyma properly. Now, the manufacturer has produced the uh, Excel probe to cater for obese individuals. In various studies, uh, even in the obese population, the success rate of measurement can reach more than 80 to 90%. So this has partially solved the problem of obesity, but this is still not perfect. Another controversial issue is that uh, in patients with severe steatosis or uh, severe obesity with extreme BMI, it appears that uh, the test may overestimate the liver stiffness, resulting in a false positive diagnosis of advanced liver disease or cirrhosis. And therefore, in such individuals, one may consider having an alternative test like ML elastography if that test is available. But uh, if not, then uh, my personal take is that you can still perform transient elastography first, because although we say that there may be issues with false positive results, the test and negative predictive value remains excellent. And therefore, so far, if the patient has a low liver stiffness, uh, even if we understand the uh, confounder and potential caveat, we can still conclude that the patient doesn't have advanced liver disease and you can exclude those patients. On the other hand, if you have a positive result, if you have a patient with high liver stiffness, this is when you have to think whether there may be confounder factors at play. Uh, that is, uh, I think, a, a very important take-home message um, because it's a large population. We are more likely to find patients who have a, a lower risk of having advanced disease, um, and that strengthens the negative predictive value and the fact that it works well at the low end. Um, I think it's an important clinical piece. And um, given the safety of this test and also wider and wider availability, um, I think it is a useful te te test clinically, and I think will remain so. The point that you noted and I want to highlight is that the positive predictive value of the test is the, is higher than the cutoff uh, of 12, uh, let's say. And there are reasons to believe that the test performance might be at risk. One has to just think a little bit more that uh, a high test doesn't always mean the patient has advanced fibrosis, and if there are other factors that are not going and are not consistent with that diagnosis, then having another test, a third test, is um, is recommended, and it's a good idea because once patients are classified as having advanced fibrosis, that diagnosis could stay with them for a long time. So. Uh, I think some degree of caution is important. And that's where understanding the test and the test performance, especially in patients who are obese and who have a higher cutoff, is important to recognize. Um, that um, brings two important points, um, Vincent. One is the role of liver biopsy. We still do liver biopsy, um, still required in many clinical trials, most clinical trials. Clinically, in your practice, when do you do it? Um, and where do you think it would be? in the next three to five years. Okay, when I learned medicine, um, my teachers always taught me that uh, when you order an investigation, it has to change your clinical practice. If you would do the same regardless of the results, you have to rethink uh, why you are doing that, particularly for a test that is invasive like liver biopsy. So uh, at present, uh, I would say that uh, I still do liver biopsies a lot, 
mainly because uh, I'm in an academic center and I'm involved in clinical trials. And therefore, if I diagnose steatohepatitis, particularly together with significant liver fibrosis or cirrhosis, uh, I will have a treatment protocol for my patients. And also, as you said, uh, for many of the late phase clinical studies in phase 2b or phase 3 development, uh, paired liver biopsies is really required uh, not only for study entry, but also for the determination of a treatment outcome. Now, I must say that this is uh, unsatisfactory. Uh, our patients don't like it, and uh, many doctors don't like it either because of its invasive uh, nature. And more than that, although we are using that as the most important yardstick to evaluate treatment effect, we know that it is a flawed test uh, in a sense because of the many issues of variability. So we know that there are sampling variabilities. So uh, when we perform a needle biopsy, we are only obtaining 1 in 50,000 of the entire volume of the liver parenchyma. And therefore, if you happen to biopsy the less severe part of the liver, you are going to underestimate the disease severity. And secondly, even if you get a good chunk of liver tissue, there is intra-observer and inter-observer variability because after all, it is the pathologist's uh, subjective assessment of the clinical tissue and experience, of course, uh, would also play a part. In particular, uh, hepatocyte ballooning is the defining feature of steatohepatitis. If you don't have ballooning, the steatohepatitis is gone. So we call that resolution of NASH. However, uh, ballooned cells are particularly difficult to identify. So you really need uh, a pair of experienced eyes. And therefore, this is something that would also introduce to the variability in the interpretation. In fact, last year in the Journal of Hepatology, there was one important paper uh, that, what, that would be a post hoc analysis of the eminence trial. So what the investigators did was to ask three pathologists to look at the baseline and uh, post-treatment liver biopsies. And then uh, they, each of them would give a score. And eventually, they would determine whether the patient had resolution of NASH or fibrosis in improvement. Now, it is really not surprising. Uh, we know that there is inter-observer variability. But what this important study shows is that if you look at not just one, but two liver biopsies, then the variability would add up together. So it, essentially, at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, it would be all over the place. So uh, yeah. the copper value would be horrible to look at. So uh, I would say that uh, this can't continue forever. So that's why we are so keen to develop non-invasive tests. Nowadays, we have already got many non-invasive tests uh, correlated with histological severity in a cross-sectional manner. So just now, I have been emphasizing on the importance of responsiveness, meaning that whether the change in those non-invasive tests can faithfully reflect uh, a change in the histology. So this is some data we need to gather. Now, in a few meetings, uh, investigators' meetings, uh, some other colleagues would ask, why are we still conducting uh, such studies, doing paired liver biopsies? This is not good for the patient. And my usually answer to them is that, uh, yes, eventually we have to get rid of that. So it, it doesn't make sense to do two liver biopsies for every patient you need to treat in the future. However, as investigators, I would see that we would have the responsibility 
to work together to gather enough data so that we can eventually move the field forward and spare our patients from uh, the pain of having repeated invasive measurements in the future. Well said, uh, Vincent. We're working with an imperfect standard, but at the same time, as you know, lots of work is happening in the field to find a better alternative. I think we're getting there, not there yet completely, but but uh, movement is in the right direction. Um, clinically, for non-trial patients, who are the patients that you send for a liver biopsy now? Okay, so nowadays it is quite rare that I only do a liver biopsy just to uh, stage the fibrosis because, uh, frankly speaking, uh, unless you want to uh, give a new treatment or enter clinical trial, most of the non-invasive tests would be reliable enough for you to make some decisions. Uh, but there are situations in which lipopopsy would be useful. So, for example, the diagnosis may be uncertain. So, the initial test may suggest that there is some fatty liver, but uh, the clinical features may not be totally compatible, so you have to consider something else. So uh, I would quote a few examples. So for example, uh, for steatal hepatitis, most of the time, the AOT level would be high, but not very high. So if you see a patient with an AOT of two 300, I would say that this is uh, quite atypical, and it is worth considering for other liver diseases. Now, if you see reversed AG ratio, albumin to globulin ratio, so this would suggest an inflammatory process. And in such individuals, uh, we would also like to think about uh, autoimmune hepatitis. And of course, uh, many a time, we would also check the other serologies. Uh, of course, we would screen for viral hepatitis. That would be quite clear-cut. But occasionally, we may also see some positive autoimmune markers. So in those situations, uh, you may also need a liver biopsy to exclude other liver diseases or or on the other hand, you may confirm an alternative diagnosis and treat accordingly. Now, finally, of course, a liver biopsy is a very important research tool, not just in the clinical trials that I've talked about. Uh, for many, many years, uh, we have been using liver biopsies, both histological analysis and also subsequent biochemical and molecular analysis for us to understand the pathophysiology under underlying most of the liver diseases. I think this will still go on with the uh, uh, availability of different omic tests. Uh, the liver tissues would be uh, pivotal for our understanding of the uh, liver disease and also what would be the uh, best treatment in the years to come. Great, great. Uh, Vincent, I agree. I think that for, the, for clinical practice, the use is for diagnostic purposes when there is unclear um, or conflicting data uh, to support a clear-cut diagnosis of NASH is when I think liver biopsy is used. And you're right, it's uh, getting less and less frequent for us, uh, common for us to order liver biopsy. Uh, this was great, Vincent. I think we had a great conversation, and I am very confident that our um, listeners are going to enjoy it as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken and Jay, and special thanks to my guest, Vincent Huang. Thank you all for joining us for this episode on diagnosing NAFLD and NASH. You can find the other five episodes in this series, the NASH Clinical Care Pathway, and more resources at the program's website, nash.gastro.org. Thank you for listening today. Visit nash.gastro.org to get your CME credits and find clinical pearls and a full transcript of this episode. 
Be sure to listen to the other five podcasts in this series on NAFLD and NASH, covering important topics like diagnosis, management, and team-based care. Also, at nash.gastro.org, you can download our NASH app to help you apply what you've learned in clinical practice. Thanks also to our sponsor, the American Gastroenterological Association, and for the medical education grant from Novo Nordisk.